How many of you are internet active? Raise your hand. Look at that. That's almost everyone. Well, you know, I mentioned this morning that on Sunday, on Sunday mornings, we're going to give you an opportunity to sort of, not on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week, we're going to give you an opportunity to kind of wade in and comment or uh, share a thought or two or, or get involved in some way uh, with the Sunday morning message. Uh, we're going to start blogging, I guess is what you call it, on the internet. And so on Sunday morning, uh, Sunday night, when I get home tonight, I'm going to post a little deal on the website and give you an opportunity to write in. And if God spoke to your heart this morning during the message, uh, you can just type that in and send, a, send it to the rest of the fellowship. We'll all kind of read it and fellowship together. And uh, if you, you know, Pastor Sandy, I was sleepy this morning. Thanks for the sermon. I, I was able to sleep through the whole thing. Something like that. We might even post that, you know. What, however you want to wade in and whatever comments you want to make. Here's what I hope will happen. I hope that uh, you'll apply the Word of God to your life. You'll apply the passage. You'll get something out of it. And you'll share with us how it's made a difference in your life and how you're applying it in your daily, daily walk. That's what I'm hoping you'll do. And it'll serve as an encouragement to the other people who read it. So here it is, awordofhope.net. Awordofhope.net. And, and by the time you wake up in the morning, I'll have something posted on there, and, and we'll be able to go back and forth. I think it should be a lot of fun. Now, we've been working our way through the Bible on Sunday nights, and as you know, we're down through the book of Esther, but I thought before we started the poetical books, it would be great to jump and take one of the Gospels, and so for the next several months, that's what we'll be doing. We're going to be working our way through the book of Matthew. First, though, please join me, and let's ask God to bless tonight's study. Father, thank you again for this opportunity to open your word. Lord, what would we do without your word? We would be lost, Lord. We would be groping for answers. We would be a mess. Thank you for your word. It's a light to our feet. It's a, it's a guide to our path. Lord, we have hidden your word in our heart, and it's kept us from sin. It's enabled us to know you and walk with you and fellowship with you. It's become a a life preserver to us, Lord, and we thank you for the truths in your word. And we ask tonight, Lord, as we study it, that you would speak to us in, in great ways. That you'd bring great clarity to our lives and strength to our faith. Father, we love you with all our hearts. And we just give tonight to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Question. What do the following musical groups have in common? The Beatles. Point of Grace, Hootie and the Blowfish, Four Aces, U2, and the Pointer Sisters. That's quite a, a diverse group. What did they have in common? The answer, they are all examples of famous quartets. You know, a quartet is a musical group consisting of four members. It's music in four-part harmony. Soprano and alto and tenor and bass. And there are different types of quartets. There's string quartets, the old barbershop quartet, even gospel quartets. And speaking of a gospel quartet, that's what we have in the first four books of the New Testament. One beautiful song written by a single composer, the Holy Spirit, but written in four-part harmony. 
God uses all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to sing the same song, but in four harmonizing parts. It's as if the Holy Spirit film crew set up four different cameras at different angles, each camera on a different corner, a corner of the action. The Gospels cover the same events, the same person, the same story, but from four differing perspectives. Mark, he wrote with an emphasis on the actions of Jesus. Compared to the other Gospels, you'll notice that Mark has very little dialogue. It's action-oriented. It was an appeal to the busy Romans. Luke wrote to the Greeks. The philosophers of Athens had a lofty view of man. Luke, therefore, emphasizes Jesus' humanity. Luke tells us that he slept and that he prayed and he sweat like great drops of blood. Luke depicted Jesus as the perfect man. John wrote with the whole world in mind. Thus, he turns the spotlight on the deity of our Lord. Jesus was God, the creator, the sustainer, the savior of the world. But Matthew, he wrote to the Hebrews. Matthew was a Jew, writing to the Jews, addressing Jewish concerns. His gospel becomes the bridge that connects the Old Testament promises with the New Testament premises. Nine times, Matthew uses the phrase, it is written. He references the Old Testament repeatedly. Fourteen times, Matthew writes of that which was spoken. There are 129 quotations or allusions from the Old Testament in the pages of Matthew's gospel. The first gospel makes it clear that the Messiah of the Old Testament and the Jesus of the New Testament were indeed one and the same. Baseball fans know you can't score a run without touching all four bases. Well, neither can you fully understand the ministry of Jesus without all four Gospels. Jesus is the servant of God, Mark's man of action. Luke says he is the man that all men were meant to be. According to John, he is even more than a man. He is God in the flesh. And Matthew reminds us that Jesus is the King of the Jews. Understand all four Gospels. And you'll follow Jesus as your king. You'll trust Jesus as your servant. You'll worship Jesus. And you will submit to Jesus as your God. He is my example. He is my servant. He is my savior. He's my God. He's my king. Verse 1 begins. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. In typical Jewish fashion, Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy. Understand that in Jewish culture, property rights, inheritance, even a person's vocation were all tied to their genealogy. Family trees were as integral and as important in Jewish life as olive trees. The Greek word translated genealogy is genesis. It means beginning. And in the Jewish mindset, each new family marked a new beginning for mankind. By recording his genealogy, Matthew's emphasizing the fact that Jesus began a new day, a new hope for fallen man. The family of Adam sinned against God and died spiritually. But Jesus, he establishes a new family that brings forgiveness and that brings life. If you go back to Genesis 5, you'll find that Adam's genealogy was full of the repeated phrase, and he died, and he died. And he died. But as we're about to see, 
The genealogy of Jesus is full of begots. Births, not deaths. In the Adams family, people are as good as dead. But hey, in Jesus' family, people find new life. Matthew 1 sets the tone for the rest of the New Testament. Well, we're told the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The Hebrew Old Testament made it clear that the promises of salvation were given to the Jews. And Matthew tells us that Jesus was a Jew. He was of the same bloodline as Abraham and David. You remember Abraham was the first Hebrew. He was the racial father of the nation. David was God's choice for king. Thus he was the royal head of the nation. And God made promises to both. He promised a savior to Abraham and a king or a Messiah to David. And Jesus was the fulfillment of both of these promises. Through Jesus' foster father Joseph, he inherited the royal right to David's throne. And through his birth mother Mary, he inherited the racial right from Abraham. The parents God picked for Jesus covered all the biblical bases. Well, the genealogy continues here in verse 2. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nation, and Nation begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. Lots of history gets swallowed up in this list of names. Verse 6, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Notice the Bible's candor. Matthew could have just called her by her name, Bathsheba. But not wanting to gloss over David's sin and failure, the author is brutally honest. Notice verse 4. Or notice the, the, in, the, in the verse 6, we have the fourth woman who's mentioned. In these first six verses, four women appear in the genealogy of Jesus. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And their appearance in the genealogy conveys some vital truths. First, a woman's name in a Jewish genealogy was highly unusual. Jewish culture was male-dominated. Women were considered second-class citizens. Rarely were they mentioned in a genealogy. Here we find four in the first six verses. And yet Matthew is setting a tone. He's foreshadowing the elevated status that Christianity will give to women. Jesus and his disciples are going to revolutionize male and female relationships. They're going to remove that second-class citizen on women and make them equal heirs together of the grace of life. Galatians 3 verse 28 sums it up. There is neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. And the appearance of these four women is no accident. These four women. It's an exclamation point, I think, on God's grace. For these four ladies, I guess apart from Ruth, were previously some pretty seedy sisters. Tamar and Rahab, remember, they were prostitutes. Ruth, though having impeccable character, she still had that stain on her record of being a Gentile. And Bathsheba, of course, 
She was an exhibitionist. I mean, everybody faults David for the sin, but remember, she was the one bathing on the rooftop in full view of the king's balcony. As Matthew infers, later that night, she ended up an adulterer. And yet, this is amazing to me. Matthew sees to it that Jesus' genealogy, a new hope for the world, the new family of God, gets littered with prostitutes, outcasts, and adulterers. Obviously, Jesus came to add to his family people soiled by sin. I've heard it put, the branches of Jesus' family tree are strong enough for sinners saved by grace. Aren't you glad? And if Jesus is willing to include in his family tree these four names, Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba, then I suspect he's not ashamed to include your name and my name to his family as well. Well, Matthew continues in verse 7 with a countdown of the kings of Judah. Solomon begat Rehoboam, and Rehoboam begat Abiyah, and Abiyah begat Asa, and Asa begat Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat begat Joram, and Joram begat Uzziah, and Uzziah begat Jotham, and Jotham begat Ahaz, and Ahaz begat Hezekiah. I hope you recognize all of these names. And Hezekiah begot Manasseh, who was Judah's most vile and wicked king. You remember Manasseh was the one who brought idolatry into the temple. He desecrated the Holy of Holies. And even though he repented later in life, the damage he created could not be averted. You know, every family has its stray sheep. That alcoholic uncle or that slutty sister. But most families try to hide their skeletons in the closet. Not Jesus. Our Lord Jesus publishes the sinner's name right here in his genealogy for the world to see. Jesus wants the world to know that he loves sinners. No matter how stained your past, no matter how problemed your present, I want you to understand Jesus is not ashamed to call you his own. A seedy past can't derail the glorious future He has for you if you trust Him and if you continue to repent. Well, verse 10 tells us that Manasseh begat Ammon, and Ammon begat Josiah, and Josiah begat Jeconiah, and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. You remember Jerusalem fell, and the last Jews were carried off to Babylon in the year 586 B.C. Now notice genealogy, Jesus' genealogy. Notice it's divided into three sections. From Abraham to David, from Solomon to the exile, and now from the return from Babylon up to Jesus' birth. We're told, and after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begot Abiud, and Abiud begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor, and Azor begot Zadok, and Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Elihud, and Elihud begot Eleazar, and Eleazar begot Mathan, and Mathan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Notice Matthew doesn't follow suit and say, Joseph begot Jesus. The author is very, very careful here to say that Jesus was not born of Joseph, 
but born of Mary. For Jesus was virgin born. God was his father. And as we'll see, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Thus, Jesus bypassed the inherent sin nature of the first man, Adam. This was important. For Jesus was born without sin so that he could later bear the sin of all men. Well, the genealogy ends here in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Which brings up the question, why the number 14? And there are numerous theories. You know, in the scripture, 7 is the number of completion or perfection. And Jesus was a double measure of perfection. 7 times 2 or 14. Remember at creation... God created the world in six days and He rested on the seventh. Now in salvation, in Christ, God's work has been completed again a second time. Thus, two times seven or fourteen. The reason for fourteen may be very spiritual. Or it could be as practical as Matthew's attempt to list the genealogy in sizable chunks that would have made it easier for the church to memorize it. When I was in high school, I wore the number 14. In baseball, I had 14. And in basketball, I had 14. And in football, I had 14. So 14 was my number. And it's interesting, as the kids have been involved in their sports over the years, they've always tried to follow suit. They've tried to keep the tradition alive. And so 14 has sort of become the Adams family number. Well, evidently, 14 is also the family number of the family of Jesus. Fourteen generations. Three separate fourteens. Here's one final strategic point about the genealogy of Jesus. Since all Jewish genealogies were housed and stored in the temple, and since the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D., it's impossible now for anyone living after 70 A.D. to produce the proper proof of a Messianic pedigree. In other words, if the Messiah had not come before the destruction of the temple, he could never have been identified. That means that Jesus is not only the Messiah, he is the only person who can prove the credentials. The story moves on, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, notice the progression between courtship and marriage. Today, it's a two-step progression. Engagement, then marriage. But in Bible times, there were three steps. There was the engagement, followed by the betrothal, that consummated into the marriage. The betrothal was the preparatory time that lasted usually about 12 months. During the betrothal, arrangements were made. Details were worked out. A betrothed couple exchanged vows. They were legally bound to each other. In fact, to terminate a betrothal, it took a bill of divorcement as it would a marriage. And yet the couple lived separately. They didn't indulge in marriage's sexual pleasures while they were betrothed. And we're told in verse 18 that it was during their betrothal that Mary was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And can you imagine Joseph's shock and outrage? 
How could Mary have betrayed me before we were even married? Couldn't she have waited on me? And can you picture Joseph confused, hurt, no doubt angry? Well, we're told then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Now understand, the law gave to Joseph the right to have Mary executed. Death by stoning. And the Jewish custom was to take the girl to the town square, put her in a knee-deep box of manure, and then begin pelting her with rocks until her face slumped over into the slime. It was an awful end. I'm sure Joseph weighed out his options. He was too moral to overlook her betrayal, but he was too merciful to take out any vengeance. In the end, despite his hurt, despite his rejection, Joseph loved Mary. And he decided to just send her away quietly. But he certainly couldn't buy the preposterous story that she had told him. I mean, Mary claimed that the father of the child was the Holy Spirit. That her conception had been a miracle. That God had borrowed her womb. Would you have believed her? (laughs) As I said this morning, what if a girl in our youth group turned up pregnant and with this cute little sweet smile told us all that the child was of the Holy Spirit? I'm sure not a one of us would have bought that story. It would take another miracle to convince Joseph of the truth of Mary's explanation. Joseph's marriage to this dream girl was saved by a dream. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know about you, but here is where I would have liked a little more detail. How exactly did this happen? God, could you break it down for us a little bit? Could you help us understand how this miracle took place? Lord, could you tell us, could you explain to us the mechanics of this miracle? But that's not what God does, is it? The Spirit overshadows the virgin. The seed of the spiritual impregnates a human egg. The human and divine mix and are one. But to probe any further than that is off limits. It's too sacred. Don't touch the ark or you might die. Here's a case where all we can really do is look on in faith and gawk at God. The angel tells Joseph that Mary will give birth, but he supplies the name. And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And of course, the name Jesus or Yeshua means Jehovah is salvation. Isn't it interesting that of all the gifts that God could have given to us, he chose to give to us a Savior? It's not like we're a tough group to shop for, is it? I mean, mankind has an infinite list of needs. He could have given us an expert in terrorism who could end the war with the Islamic fundamentalists. Or he could have given us a peace negotiator who could bring rest to this war-torn world. Or he could have given us an economic whiz who could fairly and freely distribute the wealth across the planet. Or he could have given us an environmentalist who could fuel industry while protecting the, the environment. 
Or, or at the very least, he could have given the Atlanta Falcons a coach. They're having a hard enough time finding one. Somebody that could send the Falcons to the Super Bowl finally. But of all the needs the human family possesses, the one God chose to address was our need for a Savior. Someone who could save us from our sins. Hey, the ton of trouble that exists in the world today is ultimately the result of one root problem. Sin. So above all, we need a Savior who can forgive us. Who can bridge the gap between us and God. Rather than treat symptoms, God just cut right to the core of our problems. The gift God chose to give to mankind was a Savior. And His name was called Jesus. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. Some Old Testament scholars translate the Hebrew word for virgin in Isaiah 7.14 as a young woman. That's not a common translation, but it is possible. And yet when Matthew quotes Isaiah, he brings clarity to the verse. He uses the word parthenos, which has an unequivocal, unbending meaning. It means a woman who has never had sexual relationships. Matthew clears it up for it. Jesus was virgin born. Jesus' birth was a miracle. Again, sin passed down from Adam. We get our sin from our father. That's why my wife says when the kids act up, boy, they're acting like you. It's true. That's why Jesus' father, could it be a man? His father was God. To die for the sin of man, Jesus had to be a man without sin. That necessitated a virgin birth. His father was God. His mother was Mary. As Mary's son, he was human. As God's son, he was sinless. Matthew continues his quote from Isaiah, And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And as we learned this morning, with is a wonderful word. All our loneliness ends here. God with us. God could have saved us without being with us. But God pursues withness. Not just salvation. There's a reason God saves folks. It's because he wants to be near. And he wants to be with. Notice 2 verse 22 is another example of Matthew writing to Hebrew readers. He points out that Jesus' miraculous birth was predicted by the Hebrew prophets 700 years in advance. Isaiah 7, 14 was a sign to Judah. A virgin would conceive and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now nearly 2,000 years ago, the miracle of all miracles occurred. God became a man. The ancient of days became the child of time. The infinite became an infant. Verse 24. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. I love Joseph's example of faith. Though the angel's visit assured Joseph that Mary had been faithful, I don't think it answered all of Joseph's questions. 
If your faith is limited to only what you understand, then it's going to be a weak faith. Faith doesn't always know how. Joseph's faith didn't know how. But faith refocuses on those same letters. The letters that make up the word how. Faith realigns that H and that O and that W until who comes into view. Same letters, but a big difference in perspective. We can get lost in the how, but we can be certain of who. Joseph had little to go on but God's word, yet he obeyed. You know, at Christmas we often focus on Mary and the baby and the shepherds and the wise men. But I see this man of faith, Joseph, as Christmas' unsung hero. Joseph, a man of faith. And one final point. Notice here, we're told that Joseph did not know Mary a Hebrew euphemism, the word knows, a Hebrew euphemism for sexual intercourse. He did not know Mary until after Jesus had been born. But the implication is, is that when the time was right, after the birth of Jesus, Mary and Joseph consummated their marriage. Matthew 13, verse 55 and 56 tell us that Jesus had at least four half-brothers and two half-sisters which really does great damage to the Roman Catholic doctrine of Mary's perpetual virginity. The old girl wasn't a perpetual virgin, that's for sure. She and Joseph enjoyed being husband and wife. Joseph is a model for all men. It's interesting to me that before Jesus was born, you know, Joseph... (laughs) His faith must have included a few cold showers, some sexual restraint. I think that's a good model for us men. I think whether you're single, whether you're married, every man's faith is going to require at times a few cold showers and some sexual restraint. That's part of being a man of faith. Chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. These visitors to Jerusalem are called wise men, or literally magi. The Greek historian Herodotus identified the magi as a priestly caste of Medes. Probably men who served as royal advisors in the court of Persia. The English word magistrate is a direct descendant of the word magi. These magi were men skilled in mathematics and science and astronomy and religion. They kept one eye on the sacred writings and another eye on the heavens. They were on the lookout for some supernatural sign and one had appeared. A star in the east was pointing to the location of the coming of this Hebrew Messiah. Remember the Hebrew prophet Daniel had once served in the court of Babylon. He had been head over the Magi. No doubt these men had studied his prophecies. And Daniel 9 would have told them that the coming of the Messiah was near. These wise men were also familiar with another Babylonian astrologer, a man by the name of Balaam. 
He too had been privy to God's plans. And he had seen this star years in advance. In Numbers 24 verse 17, Balaam had predicted, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. They also knew Balaam's writings and his prophecies. What this star actually was, we're not sure. Famed astronomer Johannes Kepler theorized that it was an alignment of planets that occurred infrequently but did occur in 4 B.C. And the alignment was visible from Jerusalem over Bethlehem, just over the sky. Of course, how an alignment of planets pointed to the exact location of Jesus' birth, I have no idea. There are other theories. It could have been a comet. It could have been some other celestial body. Or perhaps the star was supernatural. That God put it in the heavens for this very moment. I personally believe that it was the Shekinah glory. That was the scar that pointed the wise men to the birthplace of Jesus. Whatever the star was, the Magi reacted properly. They followed it to worship Jesus. You know, we say it every Christmas, but it's true. Wise men still worship Jesus. They come to Jesus. They bow to Jesus. They give gifts to Jesus. And the wise men are forever a great example of worship. For worship includes these same three things. True worship leaves where you're at and it moves in a direction toward Jesus. You come to Jesus when you worship. It swallows its pride and it submits to its will. You bow to Jesus. And then it finds something to give. True worship finds something to give back to Jesus for all that He has given to Him. True worship gives to Jesus. The wise men are an example. Verse 3 tells us, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Notice, all Jerusalem was frightened by the appearance of these magi. Now we usually think of three wise men. Probably because of the three gifts that they brought to Jesus. Tradition even lists three names. Caspar and Balthazar and Melchior. But nowhere in the Bible does it say that there were just three. Notice when their caravan rides into Jerusalem looking for the Messiah, they create a stir among the locals. I mean, the whole city is in an uproar. I doubt if three lone riders would have created such a stir. These were Persian, Persian dignitaries traveling through Roman territory. They very well could have been accompanied by a small army. This caravan was huge, and it scared the puppet king, Herod. And the Magi were probably dressed strangely. They, they may have worn cone-shaped hats. There are a lot of tradition that points in that direction. Their hats probably resembled that of a wizard. They also rode on horses rather than camels. They rode Arabian steeds. But what really disturbed Herod were their words. They said that they were looking for the king of the Jews. And it's interesting. This was the official title that Caesar Augustus had given to Herod when he had made him king of Judea. Herod was the king of the Jews. Now these oriental bigwigs come riding into town looking for another. Herod got a little harried. And when Herod had gathered all of the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. 
remember the word Christ, is the Hebrew, excuse me, is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed. It was the title given to David's offspring. The eternal king who would rule over an eternal kingdom. Herod calls together the leading Bible scholars to search the scriptures. Where is this Messiah to be born? And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The theologians, they search the scriptures and they point to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. It's astonishing. 720 years before the first Christmas, God revealed His Son's exact birthplace through the prophet Micah. Startling evidence of the divine authorship of God's Word. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. But that was a lie. He was masking his true intentions. Herod didn't want to worship the king. He wanted to assassinate him. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them. Till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. How many of you have a nativity set at home? Great. Does it include the wise men? Some do, some don't. Most nativity scenes depict the wise men and the shepherds together. But notice here, the wise man's visit occurred months after Jesus' birth. Luke 2 tells us that Jesus was born in a stable. But here, according to Matthew chapter 2, by the time the wise men arrive, Joseph has already relocated his family to a house there in Bethlehem. Pretend you live down the street from Joseph and Mary. You live in Bethlehem. You own the little three-bedroom down on Poplar Street. Imagine this scene. One day, an oriental caravan, conspicuous enough to shake up the capital city of Jerusalem, descends on your tiny little village. This entourage turns down your street. Oriental dignitaries walk up to the rented house next door. They're greeted at the door by that humble peasant couple who's just moved in. What are kings doing at a carpenter's shop? Curiosity causes you to peer through the windows and you see the strangest sight. Noblemen bow before a bassinet. World leaders are on their knees worshiping a toddler. How would you respond to see ambassadors worship the kid next door? It's interesting the reactions to Jesus we see in this story. Even today, people respond to Jesus in one of three ways. Antagonism, ambivalence, or adoration. Some people are like Herod. They're antagonistic toward Jesus. 
Herod hated the thought that a rival king would demand his worship. He wanted to be served, not served. Herod opposed Jesus at all odds, as many people today do. Others are like the scholars in Jerusalem. They're just ambivalent. These guys were religious. They knew their Bibles. Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But though they knew his whereabouts, they never bothered to come to him and worship. So many people today are like that. They know the truth, but they're ambivalent. They're apathetic. They don't come and worship. And there are a few folks today who are like the wise men, who adore Jesus every chance they get. Do you bow and worship Jesus? Do you adore the King of glory? People still respond to Jesus in these same three ways. Some people hate him. Other people ignore him. But wise men and women still come to Jesus and worship. Well, verse 11 tells us what the wise men give to Jesus. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold is the gift for a king. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. Frankincense is the gift for a priest. For Jesus has become our faithful and merciful high priest. But myrrh, myrrh is a strange gift. Myrrh was used in ancient times as a burial spice. It was the equivalent of an embalming fluid. Myrrh was a gift for a man born to die. Jesus is all three. He is our king. He is our priest. And he is our sacrifice. Notice verse 12. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, the wise men departed for their own country another way. The wise men become privy to some divine intelligence about Herod's true intentions. Rather than pass through Jerusalem, they take a different route home. Now when wise men, wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. This is the second time Joseph gets touched by an angel. Saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And wow, did the angel know Herod. You know, history tells us that King Herod was a little man with a big ego. He stood about four foot four inches. And he suffered from a, a severe inferiority complex. This made him a paranoid person. He was always worried about people wanting to kill him and assume his throne. Once he suspected his wife and his brother-in-law of plotting a coup. He solved the problem by executing his own family. Five days before he died, he executed his oldest son for the same reason. Caesar Augustus said that it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. Herod was a bloodthirsty ruler who hated his own people. Herod was a sicko. God knew that he would never rest knowing that a rival king had come to take the throne. And thus the angel instructs Joseph to leave for Egypt with the child and with his mother. And Joseph obeyed immediately. We're told when he arose, I mean the very next day, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Reminds me of the little girl who brought a strange picture home from Sunday school. 
since it was Christmas time, the picture was supposed to be of the nativity scene. Instead, she had drawn a picture of a few people sitting on a 757 jet airplane. That's when she explained the picture to her mother. Mom, that's Pontius the pilot driving the plane. And that's Joseph and Mary behind him. And that fat man in the back, Mom, that's round John Virgin. But the mother asked, Honey, why are they all in an airplane? To which she replied, Why, Mom, this is the flight into Egypt. Somebody asked me why I didn't tell that joke this year at Christmas time. I always do. It's because I was going to do it in January. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was extremely angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. It was a case of mass infanticide. This was Bethlehem's holocaust. Thanks to Herod, 16 years later, Bethlehem High School will graduate very few students. Jeremiah 31 predicted Herod's terror, Herod's terror, verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, another name for Bethlehem, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, a few months after Herod's despicable act, the Lord brought judgment on the evil tyrant. Herod contracted a fever, as well as several other symptoms. I'll let Josephus describe his ailments. Infection seized his whole body. There was a gentle fever upon him, and an intolerable itching over all the surface of his body, continual pains in his colon, tumors on his feet, and an inflammation of the abdomen and a putrefaction of his privy member that produced worms. I think all the men in the crowd tonight would agree <laughs> that a putrefaction of his privy member doesn't sound very pleasant. Worms in the old privy member is some serious suffering, my friend. All I can say is in the end, Herod got what he deserved. Herod died of either a kidney disease or coupled by gangrene or maybe some form of venereal disease. That's another possibility. It's interesting though, Josephus says that he was buried at his palace just outside Bethlehem on a hill known as the Herodium. In fact, you can see the Herodium from Jerusalem. And it's interesting, this past May, I just throw this in, there was a group of archaeologists who found Herod's tomb on the Herodium. Just this past year, this past May, they found his tomb, and it was in the exact location that had been pinpointed by Josephus 2,000 years earlier. Interesting. Well, when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, 
For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. See, after Herod's death, his kingdom was divided among his three sons. Archelaus ruled Judah. Antipas ruled the northern area of Galilee. And Philip was king over the Golan, the land north and east of the Sea of Galilee. And Archelaus was the most ruthless of these three sons. He used the sword to solve his problems. Josephus recounts how that once he put down a revolt of some 3,000 Pharisees by slaughtering them at one time in the streets of Jerusalem. Archelaus' cruelty created such opposition among the Jews that they protested to the Romans, and the Romans deposed him, sent him into exile into Gaul or France. By the time Jesus begins his ministry, Judah will be a Roman province governed by a governor named Pilate. It was taken from Archelaus, and Pilate took over. Verse 22. And being warned by God... In a dream. Notice this is the fourth time now that God has spoken to Joseph in a dream. He turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, which was his hometown, remember. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now the Old Testament didn't predict that Jesus would come from the city of Nazareth per se. Only that he would be called a Nazarene. The Hebrew word for Nazareth or Nazarene is from the root word netzir, which means to sprout. Nazareth, in essence, meant sprout town, or I guess you could call it bean town. The word netzir was also translated in the Old Testament as branch. This was the name given Messiah, since he would be a branch of David's family tree. And thus it fulfilled scripture for Jesus to be from Nazareth, not necessarily because the city was predicted, but because it meant he would be called a Nazarene or the branch. This may have been in the mind of blind Bartimaeus when he heard that Jesus was coming. Jesus of Nazareth, the branch, was passing by. That's why he shouted, Jesus, son of David. He knew that that meant he was of the family tree of David. Have mercy on me. He associated Nazareth or Nazarene with the branch from David's family tree. Well, there we have the first two chapters of the book of Matthew. Next week, we'll pick up in chapter 3. And so read ahead, chapters 3 and 4 this coming week, and be ready to study God's Word with us next Sunday night. If you have questions over tonight's Bible study, I'm going to be down here in the altar, and I'll be happy to talk with you about it. Share the questions. Don't forget, if you'd like to uh, wade in and fellowship with us on the blog, that's awordofhope.net.